0: As we continue our subsection on the commands of Christ, uh, entitled Why I Am a Theonomist, where I'm somewhat chronicling um, at least my experience on this issue of whether or not the law of God uh, contained in the civil codes of Moses, the law of Israel, the civil law, things that were crimes in Israel, should in fact be our model for what are crimes throughout all of history We're on um, letter D, so this will be my fourth message along these lines. And I've picked four uh, passages that I would just like to use as somewhat of a springboard into discussing uh, this issue. It's 1 Corinthians 15.33, Proverbs 13.20, Ephesians 5.11 and 12, and Leviticus 20.7 and 8. Hear now the word. Of God. Do not be deceived; evil company corrupts good habits. First Corinthians fifteen thirty-three. He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the, but the companion of fools will be destroyed. Proverbs thirteen twenty. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. Ephesians 5:11 and 12. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God, and you shall keep my statutes and perform them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Leviticus 20. Seven and eight. Thus far, the reading of God's Word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would help us to understand the responsibility that we have as those who have been saved by Jesus Christ, the King of all kings. Help us, Father, to know our responsibilities in every venue, in our families in our church, and in our nation. Help us, Father, never to mix up what it means to be saved with what it means to walk a righteous life. May we ever recognize that our hope is in Christ alone. But help us also to recognize that a saving faith, Father, is never alone. And that it ought to govern our thoughts, our words, and our deeds. So give us direction on what those thoughts, words, and deeds ought to be, we pray, that we might serve you well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In uh, my younger years, I was a track and field athlete, high jumper to be specific. Anybody who's a watched me recently play volleyball. Or you're probably amazed at that. I a credit card jump these days. I don't think in the sand I'm technically even jumping because I think when I jump, my feet are still in the sand. My heels are above the sand. But while I was participating in that event, the high jump, that's where you run and jump over a bar. You don't have a pole. You just run and jump over this bar. I developed a really nasty habit. Every time I would feel my body knock the crossbar off the standards, thus constituting a missed attempt, an expletive would almost involuntarily be launched from my lips. And this would happen in midair. I had no time to think, no time to plan, no time to form a support group. In midair, I'd feel myself miss, and right out of my mouth, I would yell a bad word. Now, this became an issue for me. Articles in the newspaper openly chronicled my Christian faith. Spectators would come to watch the Christian high jumper, only to hear a Richard Pryor routine (laughs) at every failed effort. So I approached uh, a mentor that I had in the faith for counsel. I explained my problem to him, to which he almost immediately responded by saying, it's probably the company you're keeping. There is a general biblical principle expressed in the passages that I just read, and many, many other passages like that, that we are to keep ourselves as Christians unstained by the world, as James puts it unstained by the world. Some Christian sects, I think, mistakenly take this admonition so seriously that they remove themselves from society and create their own subcultures. There are groups of Christians, they just move to a a plot of land and they just get out of the world entirely. At least they think they're getting out of the world. They're really not. But friends, it's not the prayer of Jesus that we would isolate ourselves from the world by which we're surrounded. That is not the way Jesus prayed for us. Jesus' prayer for us is not that the Father would take us out of the world, but that he should keep us from the evil one, John 17, 15. When we think of the effects of bad company, as the Apostle Paul put it, it might bring to our minds the friends that our children might choose. Or the friends that we, as adults, might choose and their influence upon us. And I think it certainly includes that. It might primarily include that. It might primarily include me being careful about who I'm spending my time with or what I'm spending my time doing. But, friends, the principle of contamination is not limited to the friends we choose. It's not just about me hanging out with the right people. As our culture becomes increasingly lax in terms of what is acceptable and legal behavior, we are simply foolish to think that we and our children will be left unscathed. Back in 1994, I was watching a movie, movie reference, to get that in, where um, our governor was playing a secret agent who was losing control of his teenage daughter, his partner, secret agent partner, played by, a guy, by Tom Arnold, I mean, you know who that actor is, offered what I found to be an accurate analysis explaining this. This is how the dialogue went. Yeah, but you're not her parents anymore, you and Helen. Her parents are Axel Rose and Madonna. The five minutes you spend a day with her can't compete with that kind of constant bombardment. You're outgunned, amigo. (laughs) Friends, we're being fed a constant diet of ungodliness. Movies, books, video games, television shows, billboards, bus stops routinely portray behaviors, which the Bible teaches, quite frankly, to be capital crimes as acceptable recreation with no consequences. How many television shows highlight adultery, homosexuality, and fornication in such a way that by next Thursday night, everybody's healed? No consequences. Everybody's fine. You just have to wait until the next episode, and everybody's cool. How many Christians have been so infected by the world that they engage in uh, pregnancy terminations, divorce, pornography, drug, and alcohol abuse? As if these sins, many of which the Bible considers to be crimes, our standard operating procedure. Perhaps you recall the strife between Abraham and Lot. It was really Abram then, where Abram offered Lot whatever land he pleased. Remember the story where their, their herdsmen are fighting? And Abram goes, Look, at it. let there be no strife between the two of us. Look up and pick whatever land you desire. Lot found the plain of Jordan, a pleasing terrain. He looked out there and it just looked pleasing. Pitching his tent, the Bible says, as far as where? Anybody know? Sodom. As far as Sodom. Moses then records, quote, But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. Friends, Lot's decision effectively destroyed his family. His wife eventually became a pillar of salt, and his daughters engaged in really what we'd have to argue to be very unseemly behavior. My point in all of this is to state what should be obvious, that a corrupt environment is corruptive. This, and let me just hasten to say this, in no way alleviates our responsibility to pursue holiness. I think many of us need to rethink what we watch, what we read, the things we play, the things we allow our children to do along these lines. I think a lot of us need to rethink this. We need to rethink what we're spending our time engaging in. We have to recognize that the culture in which we live is desensitizing us to things that should just be abhorrent. We may find ourselves in an ungodly environment, friends, but that doesn't mean we need to be immersed in it. We may wish to carpet the world, but in the meantime... We need to put on a comfortable pair of shoes which which insulate us from the current pollutions. I may change the world. I think we should try to change the world. I think that's a responsibility. Of course, that's kind of this whole theonomy thing. But in the meantime, comfortable shoes, maybe that's not enough of illustration. Maybe we have to put on one of those suits, those hazmat suits, to not be polluted by the corruptions by which we find ourselves surrounded. Now, I'm not going to make a list of rules. I know people like the rules. And you know what? The rules will come when I actually get into the Ten Commandments. I think those are rules. I mean, I know we're anti-rule and everything, but those are rules. And we'll get into those rules when when the time comes. But I'm here to tell you that we are foolish to think that when we engage in a culture unrestrained by godly statutes, that it will not have negative consequences on us and our children. I'm just and our children. I'm just warning you. I mean, I see it in myself, and I see it by, in the people I'm surrounded by. And I, I understand there is this sense, uh, there is this desire. Sometimes people will have. Well, we need to so isolate ourselves. We need to be. I had a guy tell me years ago when I first came to the church. He goes, you know what? You need to kick us in the butt a little bit more. Kick us in the butt. Because uh, the previous pastor was pretty good at that. I, it's just I don't really do that. I'm not that, I'm not a kick you in the butt kind of person. Uh, I'm uh, in the you know even as, maybe as a young coach I was more that way. But I, as I coached, I basically kind of had a more of a measured uh, way that I would express things. I would say, look at if you want to win, you can't do that. Now if you want to win, you need to either do this or that. But you can't do that. And if you do that, you're going to lose. Now, you have to decide whether or not you want to win or lose. You know, but you can't be lazy. And you can't be fundamentally unsound. You know, you have to know what the objectives are. And you need to pursue those objectives with everything you've got. Now, if you want to just be bad at what you do, then, then you know what? I'm going to find somebody else to coach. Because it got to the point where I am just, I don't, I don't have time to coach people who don't want to win. I can't get that into you. I'm not going to yell at you every day. I can't follow you around all day. Right? And yell at you every time you do something wrong. It's just not my style. You know? I have a hard enough time doing that with my own family and myself. But I will tell you, and I'm here to tell you, that we are foolish to think that we can engage in this world in a culture that is moving further and further and further away from those things that God has determined to be sanctifying to our souls and not have that pollute our hearts. It's a bad, we're in a bad direction. moving. Uh, we're moving in a bad direction as, as a culture. So how does this all relate to the issue that I'm in a sub-series on theonomy, the idea that the law of God should be uh, the model that we utilize for our civil laws? Friends, the law of God Revealed in the civil codes, primarily in the Old Testament, is God's prescription for the restraining of sins slash crimes, which will eventually decimate a culture. God doesn't say these particular sins need to be crimes willy-nilly, you know, capriciously. He's basically saying these sins need to be crimes because these particular sins are the types of behavior that will ruin a society. And they need to be stopped. It's not enough to leave these up to the individual conscience. We don't tell a person who's committing murder, well, hopefully you'll feel bad enough about it someday to stop doing it. That's not the way that's dealt with. That person needs to be stopped. And then we have to, we have to make this decision. Well, what behaviors are crimes? What are those things that God has said? Look, at this can't go on. Has God left us to our own wisdom to figure that out? I don't think so. I think God has shown us in his word. These are the things that must be dealt with by man. It goes all the way to Genesis 9. Whosoever sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. There are certain things that our civil magistrate, that our governors, that our kings, our presidents, whatever that person in authority is, there are certain things that they are to deal with. I would guess, friends, that 70 to 80% of the people who come into my office seeking to put together their crumbled lives have been, at some level, the victims of a culture that has scoffed at and ignored sins which the Bible classifies as crimes. You understand what I'm saying? And I'm not saying this is some big excuse. I mean, we have to understand individual personal culpability that we all have. I don't see anywhere in the Bible God buying the idea that, Lord, you don't understand, my second grade teacher was just so messed up and ever since then, you know. We need to take responsibility. Nonetheless, those things will influence us. We will pursue these particular sin crimes in detail when we start unpacking the Ten Commandments. But for now, I'm just trying to lay groundwork. And I know I've been doing that for a while. So if I might state parenthetically that you've been very patient students. You have my commendation for that, those of you who are still here. Though I realize there is a sense in which you just want to know what to do rather than all the theological nuts and bolts behind it. Just tell us what to do. You just want to know what time it is. You don't want to know how to build a clock. But friends, it is my conviction that we must be careful of that mentality. The Apostle Paul would generally dedicate the first half or more of his efforts in an epistle to enlightening us regarding the great theological truths of who we are in Christ. I mean, if you read Paul's epistles, generally you have three chapters, or I think in Romans you've got like 11 chapters telling us who we are in Christ. And then we have a word. What's the word? Therefore. And then he tells us what to do. Therefore, lay aside all manner. Therefore, live in a manner consistent with your calling. Therefore, present your bodies living in holy sacrifices. But we need to recognize that Paul took a lot of time telling us what the therefore is therefore, right? We need to understand why we do the things we do. It's not just enough to know, well, Pastor Paul, tell us the rules. That's not enough. We need to know not only what the rules are, We need to know not only how they are applied, we need to know why those are the rules and we need to be firmly convinced that the Scriptures thus teach. Parenthesis over. Friends, recognize not all sins are crimes, but God in His Word tells us which ones are. And I believe it is our responsibility as Christians, as those who have been saved not by works, But by grace, I think it's our responsibility of those those of us who recognize it's not me doing these things that save me. I'm saved by the grace of God alone, through faith in Christ alone, by the work of Christ. All my hope is in Christ. But being those people, we have a responsibility to seek to cultivate an environment that looks as little like Sodom and Gomorrah as possible. this may all seem so obvious. I have found that basic laymen who read their Bibles are in general agreement with the idea of theonomy. In this respect, for the most of you, I may be preaching to the choir. You might be going, well, yeah, Pastor Paul, obviously God's law should be the standard for law. But I guarantee you, if as the choir you start singing theonomic hymns there are plenty in the world and within the church who will seek to quell your song. And then you're going to want to get the notes to have the discussion. That's why I write these all out. We need to be able to give an answer. It's not enough to just get up there on a soapbox and say it's wrong. We need to be give, give an answer to the world and to the church who would say, you're too political. This morning, I'm going to seek to answer just one question. Is the New Testament, because you realize this whole issue is mainly an Old Testament issue, right? The civil law given to Moses is given to him in the Old Testament. The question I want to ask and answer, is the New Testament silent on the issue of theonomy? That the law of, you know, again, theonomy, I realize most of you have heard these, but just for those of you who are new, theonomy is from two words, theos meaning God, nomos meaning law, the law of God. But it more specifically relates to the law of God as contained in the civil codes. You understand by civil codes, I'm talking about what should be like the law, you know, um, the law in the books, the law that you get arre- the things you get arrested for, those types of laws, if you understand uh, what we're talking about. Is that discussed in the New Testament? Well, when I was being examined at Presbytery to be administered as a minister in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, which was, I think, about seven years ago, we had decided we wanted to join this denomination. We liked this denomination. We liked the theology. We liked the authors, you know, Machen and Gentry and Bonson were the guys, uh, Roger Wagner. There were a group of people who we really liked, and we thought, this is where we want to go. But in order for that to happen, I had to actually be examined by the Presbytery which was kind of a hoot, you know, you basically stand up in front of it. First, you're kind of examined by a smaller group, but then you stand up in front of the whole, all the pastors and a group of elders from the entire Southern California, Arizona, Nevada area, and they can ask you whatever they want. And this went on for hours. It was quite an interesting little, I think it's great, I think you should, I think we should have those. But there was apparently common knowledge that I held this theonomic perspective. And so many of the questions I received were thus directed. And I appreciated that members of the Presbytery weren't mean about it. And I found a number of advocates. I found a number of amens, you know. It was kind of nice, you know. And this is a kind of a controversial issue. But friends... It was those who lovingly sought to correct me, and they did it lovingly. Nobody was mean about it. I think we need to be able to engage without getting all upset, you know. But those who lovingly sought to correct me, that further confirmed my commitment, largely due to the flawed logic, at least in my opinion, of their objections. You ever remember somebody, they're telling you why they think you're wrong, and then the reason that they're giving you for why you're wrong is such a bad reason that you feel like you're even more right than you were before? Much of this was based upon the New Testament's supposed silence on the issue. I remember one pastor, he quoted Galatians 6.1, which reads, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. He then asked, if you're a theonomist, it would seem that instead of restoring him, you would arrest him. Now, the answer to that objection, friends, it's really simple. Galatians was written not to the civil magistrates of Galatia, but to who? To the churches of Galatia. It's not my job as an officer in the church to arrest anybody. We don't have a little jail cell back here where we start arresting people. But let me just say this. If the particular trespass that I'm dealing with, where I'm trying to, as a pastor, restore the erring brother. If the trespass is a crime, then I would recommend that the offender turn himself into the civil magistrate who should arrest him. Right? I mean, doesn't that seem obvious? The guy's committed a crime. I'm thinking, do you understand it's a crime? Do you repent? Do you trust in Jesus? I'm operating as an officer in the church. And then I'm going to go, you know, you need to turn yourself in for this. I've done this many times. And you know what? Quite frankly, depending on what's going on here, if they don't, I may. You're going to turn yourself in or I'm going to turn you in, depending on the crime, depending on what's going on here. God has set up three institutions, the home, the church, and the state. And it is the state's responsibility to arrest evildoers, to punish evildoers. Friends, people who object to theonomy based upon the New Testament tend to ignore the primary purpose of the New Testament, which was to reveal that Jesus, the Messiah, had come. Why why is there a New Testament? There's a New Testament because the promised Messiah is here. People tend to ignore the historical, political context of the New Testament church. What was the political context of the New Testament church? It was what you call a monarchy, right? Who was in charge? Who was the political leader during that time? Caesars. Yeah, numerous Caesars. And no one was asking Christians to run for the Senate. No one was asking Christians what they thought the law ought to be. No one was asking Christians to go vote. Unlike the Republican democracies, which would follow and now exist. We are asking. They are asking you now to run. They are asking Christians to vote. Friends, do we for a minute think that if the first century Roman Church had a rep- or if first century Rome had a representative form of government, think about this. Do we think for a minute that if first century Rome had a representative form of government, in which Christians could run for office and be elected as lawmakers? that they would not have seized that opportunity for good as they watched their brothers and sisters in the faith being eaten by animals and burned to light gardens? Do you think for a minute that while we're watching our brothers and sisters being put to death for their faith by the powers that be, and they said, you know what, you can be involved in this process, this legislative process, you can make that illegal. Do you think for a minute they'd say, well, you know what, I just don't believe in uh, mixing church and state. Uh, so I guess my point here, my initial point is, when people say you don't see that kind of stuff in the New Testament, they're they're ignoring what the political context was of the New Testament. It wasn't a democracy. It wasn't a republic. It wasn't a place where Christians could engage in the process the way we can now. But those times would come. We now have that opportunity. Uh, I would argue this, you know, that the... truly in a representative form of government, if it's a good representative form of government, the ultimate power in a worldly basis is who? I would argue the people. It's the people, right? It's the people who can decide to elect a president. It's the people who can decide to elect congressmen and senators. It's the people who make those decisions. So the closest thing we have to a king are the people. Now, here's the question you have to ask yourself. Do you believe Jesus is king of kings? Because if you believe Jesus is king of kings, then we as a corporate, as a collective group of people who form the closest thing that we have to a king, must bow and defer before his authority in every area of life. That all being said, I would argue the New Testament is not silent on theonomy. And let me give you just a couple of examples. Paul indicates that it is a lawful use of the law to restrain evil. 1 Timothy 1 8 through 11, we read this. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers. And if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. John Calvin comments on this, that, quote, the law of God was given in order to restrain the licentiousness of wicked men because they who are good of their own accord do not need the authoritative injunction of the law. Now, somebody might, you know, I don't like to over-anticipate objections because I know that can get kind of long and laborious, but somebody might assume we all fall into the category of lawless and insubordinate. I mean, when he says that the law was not made for a righteous person, you might go, well, who's righteous? Obviously, this is just kind of a, you know, a, 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 a... unanimous comment upon all of humanity. I mean, after all, who is actually righteous? But here again, I would agree with Calvin, who explains that the righteous person Paul writes of here is not somebody who is absolutely perfect, but one who desires to aim at what is good. Not every time we read. I mean, the Bible talks about Job being a righteous person, does that mean Job never sinned? I mean, we talk, the Bible talks about Nathanael being an Israelite in whom, in whom there is no guile. Does that mean there, there was never any guile? Was he perfect in that category? So the Bible will talk about people as being good people, but that doesn't mean that they're sinless because we know there was only one sinless Jesus. The point here is that Paul is letting us know that it is a proper use of the law to restrain evil. Those who do not decide to do right because of their own decision by the grace of God to do right, that it is a proper use of the law to restrain them by law from doing those types of things, which should be crimes. I also heard an objection to theonomy with an appeal to Romans 12 and 13 where God has, quote, appointed all governing authorities. The general objection here is that it's God's business and we shouldn't worry ourselves about it. God appoints authorities. And so the argument was, you know what, God will make kings. God will make these authorities So let's not overly concern ourselves about it. We, of course, recognize that God makes and deposes kings. But friends, that is a that is a that is begging the question. The question is, if the appointed authorities are, as the text indicates, God's ministers. Romans 12 and 13 says that God appoints authorities. And then he calls those authorities God's ministers who are to, quote, Execute wrath on those who practice evil, Romans thirteen four. If that's the case, here's the question. What is their standard? What, what is the standard of those God has appointed to be His ministers of vengeance who execute, execute wrath on evil? What is their standard? That's, that's the question. The question isn't who makes kings. We know who makes kings. The question is, what is the standard that the king ought to use If he recognizes that Christ is his Lord and his King. Has God left his ministers with no standard? It would be particularly cruel of God to establish civil ministers and then leave them to their best guesses regarding that which is just. Would it not? Let me ask you just a quiz. In the Old Testament where it says, and all the people did that which was right in their own eyes. Was that a commendation or a criticism? That's a criticism. So is God saying, I'm establishing a civil authority. And you know what? Just do that which is right in your own eyes. Is that the standard? Again, I think that would be particularly cruel, especially in light of the great judgment that falls upon those who lead in an ungodly manner. Friends, it is in a very political context that God said, quote, Woe to those who decree unrighteous decrees. Isaiah 10, 1. Think about it. He's going, he, there's a threat. Woe to you if you decree unrighteous decrees. You're God's minister. You are the one to execute wrath on evildoers. Question. What are unrighteous decrees? Where do I find that? How do I know? Does God, is God saying, well, good luck on that? If you watch enough Perry Mason, he was a good lawyer. He will I mean, where do we get the answers to these questions? Friends, it is in the New Testament that we are told that God's ministers bear, quote, the sword. The sword being an instrument of what? Execution. The sword was an instrument of civil punishment. What about Jesus' use of the civil law? It is in the New Testament that Jesus appeals to one of the most commonly ridiculed civil laws of Moses. I was listening to a debate between um, Alan Keyes and Alan Dershowitz on the role of God in government. If you've never heard that debate, you really need to get a hold of it somehow. Alan Keyes is a um, black Roman Catholic uh, conservative and uh, who's just brilliant, quite frankly. He's really... Alan Dershowitz is a Jewish atheistic law professor at Harvard. And uh, Dershowitz just got annihilated, in my opinion, in this debate. But one of the things that Dershowitz brought up in the debate, one of those most highly criti- criticized laws that we see in the Bible, is what Dershowitz goes, so you believe that the law of God should be the law? Yes. So when the Bible says that we should... Kill recalcitrant children. You believe that should be the law. Right? Can you imagine the whole audience going, is that in the Bible? All of a sudden the kids are paying attention. Jesus actually utilizes that very law in the New Testament. In his rebuke of the Pharisees where he says, why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? For God commanded saying, honor your father and your mother and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received for me is a gift to God. Then he need not honor his father or mother. Thus, you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Well, I don't have time here to talk about the particular infraction of the Pharisees. We we spoke about that when we were at that portion of, of Matthew. Here's the point. The point is Jesus' use of the civil code of Moses. He, he, he refers back to the civil code of Moses. He says, you know what? The, the civil code of Moses says you curse your mother and your father. You are to be put to death. Again, I don't have time to go into what that even looks like. I mean, there's a whole process there. By the way, it's not... You know, Junior running up here on stage, or Gino spilled his milk. I mean, generally what you have in terms of the Old Testament case studies of that are more grown children who are in continued rebellion against all authority, and their own parents bring them before the city gates to be stoned. We're talking about guys like Phineas and Hophni or Nadab and Abihu. We're talking about like Menendez brothers level children. It's a matter of kind of understanding what's going on here. The point is, Jesus utilizes one of the most criticized civil codes in the Old Testament to make a point and never even hints at it being abrogated or its authority in any way being lessened. What a great opportunity for him to say, but now that we're approaching here the new covenant, or now that we're in the new covenant, it's a good thing for you guys. He's not saying that. He's not saying it's a good thing you're in the new covenant because if we were in the old covenant, you'd be in a lot of trouble. No, the force of his argument is you deserve this. And when people appeal to to tradition, have you ever noticed that? It's a big word among conservatives. When people appeal to tradition as the basis of their legal standards, we see it with popular conservative radio talk show hosts. They hold to the traditions that made this country great. You hear that? I mean, I hear that a lot. Those traditions, by the way, for the most part, are good. I mean, most of those traditions, a lot of those traditions I agree with. But, friends, let me just tell you this. Those traditions, if not grounded in the Scriptures, by the very nature of the case, make the commands of God of no effect. This is a big argument, by the way, with Roman Catholics and Protestants. You know, because they believe that tradition in the Church is equal to Scripture. Let me just tell you, we can talk about this during Q&A if you'd like. When you make tradition equal to the scriptures, tradition becomes more valuable than the scriptures to you. You make, you make the, as Jesus said, you make the command of God of no effect. We could talk about how that unfolds or how that really works. But that's the nature of the case. Other examples of the civil law of God, at least surfacing in the New Testament, would be the efforts of Jason and the brethren in Acts 17, who were, quote, turning the world upside down, acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. They were upsetting not just the, you know, the chief priest, they were upsetting the civil magistrate. The, accus- the accusation here had political overtones to it. When the Jews' friends wanted to convince Pilate that they were not followers of Jesus, their chant was one which unveiled their political convictions. What did they say? We have no king, but who? Caesar. It's a fairly common held position that the phrase Jesus is Lord was a response to the required phrase in the Roman Empire, acknowledging what? Anybody know? Yeah, Caesar is Lord. And when people were required to say Caesar is Lord and they said Jesus was Lord, they were put to death. When Pilate expressed his own political power over Jesus, Jesus made it clear that Pilate's power was given to him from where? From above. In all this talk of worldly kingdoms versus heavenly kingdoms, Jesus made one thing clear. I mean, and I'm opening you into this debate. The people who argue against what I'm teaching here will say, look, if there's a heavenly kingdom, and you need to concern yourself with the heavenly kingdom and not worry about these worldly kingdoms. There's two kingdoms. It's the city of God, city of man. And I think they misuse Augustine in that. But I think what here is, in all this talk of worldly kingdoms versus heavenly kingdoms, Jesus made one thing clear. If Pilate were savvy enough to understand it, it's not that there's no relationship between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of men, but that the kingdom of which Jesus is king is the kingdom that appoints kings. Jesus was saying, look at, I don't need swords. I don't need people, you know, drawing arms. My Father in heaven has given you that position. You know, I mean, if, if Pilate were wise, he would have said, well, how, should he, how does he think I should govern? How, how am I doing? But instead, he became critical, right? What is truth? You know, he just tried to wash his hands of the whole problem. Friends, it is in the New Testament that we see John the Baptist beheaded for openly criticizing the ungodly marriage of a political figure. John the Baptist was criticizing, and Herod was kind of a semi-religious political figure. But believe me, the Jews during the time, the faithful Jews during the time of John the Baptist did not look at Herod as a religious figure. They looked at him as a political figure who was engaged in an ungodly marriage. John the Baptist criticized that marriage and he was put to death for criticizing a political figure because of his marriage. Man, isn't that interesting in today's uh, political immoral scene that we have where the basic idea is if you're the president and you're having affairs and you know, the answer to that is it's just none of your business. That's the big answer now, right? Just mind your own business. It's just none of your business. Well, apparently John the Baptist thought it was his business. And it cost him his life. It is in the New Testament where we are introduced to that which is Antichrist. And him who is Antichrist. Instead of the law of God written on our hands and foreheads. from As we read in Deuteronomy 6, eight. You realize the whole idea of law, hand and foreheads, which is so popularized by Hal Lindsey and the Left Behind series uh, with the, the mark of the beast. Way, way more times in the Bible is to talk about God's law being on our heads and on our hands and the mark of God being upon those who are faithful. And the idea, I believe, here is that the hand, the forehead and the hand is how you think and how you behave. As we talk about all the time, right? Do You have a faith that is an active faith. But we have this character that is revealed in the New Testament. And he wants our allegiance. He wants his mark on our foreheads and on our hands. And what is this man's name, this beast? The Apostle Paul, I think it's safe to argue, refers to him as the man of what? Anybody know? The man of lawlessness. He's a political figure, and he's the man of lawlessness who demands our thoughts and deeds. Friends, let me just tell you, we, we either have God for a ruler or we will end up, if you will, with a beast for a ruler. We will either recognize the authority of God or we will defer to the authority of man. We have no king but Caesar. I would argue that that was one of the earliest actions in the New Testament where people took the mark of the beast upon themselves. Is theonomy taught in the New Testament. You know what? It doesn't have to be. Since as Christians, we believe in the 66 books of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And when we read of all the promises associated with the coming Messiah recorded in the Old Testament, friends, it speaks of one who will rule over and bring justice to the nations. That is the expectation of the Messiah. And we should think no less of it. Nonetheless, the answer to the question is yes. I think it is taught in the New Testament. One last thing. In all this talk of law and cultural transformation, I need to make this last point, especially as we proceed to the Lord's table, as Mike's going to come up in just a second. None of this should be thought of as man-made triumphalism or carnal culture wars or a moral majority pulling themselves up by their own bootstraps and creating a utopia on earth through human innovation. It's not, hey, look at us. We can do it. We just need, I mean, I've always had a problem with that name of the organization, Moral Majority. I mean, I, the very name of it, they should have had a different name. You know, the um, wretched, yet, wretched Yet Saved Majority. Something other than that, because it does sound kind of prideful, right? We're the moral ones. I mean, maybe they had a different... But the connotation is there. Nonetheless, I, and I, I quite frankly appreciated their efforts. Appreciate the fact that they were out there fighting while a lot of people just kind of went back into their little covey, you know, their little den, hovel. But we should not think of it that way. Friends, it is by a God-given recognition of our own sin, folly, weakness, and need for Christ that anything good in this world will happen. It is by a recognition of our own sin, weakness, folly, and need for Jesus that any good thing will ever happen in our lives individually or collectively. The redemption of the world does not come through lawmaking or law-keeping or transformed cultures, but through the blood of Christ, redeeming souls one at a time through word and sacrament. Whatever good things might happen, that's a result of grace. That's a result of the fact that God is working in our lives. It's a result of God pouring down his light upon us. It doesn't somehow procure it. If we do not have humility before God, continually confessing our utterly incapacitated state and need for forgiveness. If we do not day by day seek to drink from the cup of Christ's tender mercies, praising God alone for our salvation. Let me just say, all this talk of law means nothing and will amount to nothing. May that subdue our hearts as we come to eat and drink and remember the broken body and shed blood of our righteous Savior. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that we would recognize that it is not through human effort or endeavor that redemption takes place, but by your grace through the blood of Christ, even as we sung through faith alone. Help us, Father. To recognize that that is our peace. That is our eternal hope. And that the ups and downs of what happens in particular cultures in no way, Father, alleviates or mitigates your sovereign hand in all things. So let us, Father, take comfort. And when we stop, and as Mike comes up and we prepare for the Lord's table... And we eat and we drink and we remember. Let us not remember what good things we have done, but let us remember what Jesus did for us. But having said that, Father, we do pray that we would wake up and that we would be firm in our convictions, that we would seek with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength to keep ourselves unpolluted by the world in which we live. And may we, Father, make every effort, as far as it depends upon us, to make decisions that are honoring to you, that are in accord with your good and perfect law, that it might be a blessing, Father. Through Christ we pray. Amen. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry.